I've said it before, and I'll say it again. Sometimes the truth is stranger than fiction, and this case is one of those strange ones. After the death of a beloved father and husband, his family began fighting over his money and land in eastern Washington. Maybe that's not so strange, but Tim McNamara's death also came with allegations of murder, incest, and betrayal. Welcome to Twisted Travel and True Crime. I'm your host, Sandy. I like to jump right into the cases I cover, but I'd like to quickly ask that if you enjoy this episode, please take a minute to give it a good rating and review after you're done listening, and maybe share it with a friend. Okay, let's get started. The story begins in Soap Lake, Washington. It's a small town with a population in 2021 of just over 1,700 people. The lake the town is named after is known to be one of the most minerally diverse bodies of water on Earth. The original Native American name, Smokium, I probably said that wrong, I apologize if I did, it translates to healing waters, and its high mineral content gives the rich waters a slick, soapy feel. This mineral-rich water was part of the reason that Tim McNamara's apple orchard grew into a booming business. He owned four parcels of land, including 84 acres of apple orchard. His children, Caleb and Jennifer, learned to walk and then run on those precious acres. They played in the dirt and mud and probably ate enough apples to make them sick. Tim loved his children and his properly deeply and had worked very hard to cultivate and maintain them both. His work ethic and determination brought prosperity to the family. Tim and his wife, Vicki, had been married for nearly 30 years, but they would eventually get a divorce after having raised their two children together. On the other side of town, and not nearly as prosperous, a little girl named Tracy Zerb was born and raised. She was born in 1971 and was a beautiful little baby who grew into a beautiful young woman. Tracy's mother had a relationship with a man named John McNamara, which resulted in Tracy's birth. John McNamara is uh, the orchard owner, Tim McNamara's brother. So John McNamara didn't want anything to do with Tracy's mother but he was ordered to pay child support back in the 1970s. Beyond that, there was no relationship between Tracy and her father. As an adult, Tracy began looking for him and reaching out to his family. Once again, she was rejected by John, but she would meet some of her relatives on her father's side, including her step-siblings, uncle and cousins, although she rarely spent any time with them. At the age of 17, Tracy would move to North Carolina, and in 1991, Tracy would marry the father of three of her children. Their marriage lasted until 1999. Tracy made her money waitressing at a Ruby Tuesdays, where she worked for nearly 20 years, from 1993 to 2012. After her divorce, she would meet another man with whom she would have a fourth child, a little girl. Tracy spent much of her life in North Carolina, but most summers she would make an effort to come home to Soap Lake to spend time with her mother and extended family. It wasn't just her mother's side of the family she was interested in, though. She was still very interested in the McNamaras. The catch-all phrase, daddy issues, might be a fitting way to describe Tracy. She wanted to be loved. She wanted the attention of her father and his family. And perhaps this is what led to her relationship with Caleb McNamara. As a reminder, Caleb McNamara is Tim McNamara's son, and therefore, Caleb is Tracy's cousin. The relationship between Caleb and Tracy is particularly painful for the McNamaras. 
their shame and embarrassment, but the story goes that in or around 1991, when Caleb was 20 or 21 years old, Tracy came back to town to visit. She was 10 years older than he was, so closer to 30. She entered into a sexual relationship with him. This relationship didn't bother her, but it did bother Caleb. Tracy justified her actions because she wasn't 100% sure that John McNamara was her father. Perhaps Caleb, being young and horny, let that possibility sink in, and together they performed the no-pants dance. Caleb knew that what he was doing wasn't right, and claims to this day that it's one of the biggest regrets in his life. If that's true, he didn't make that decision until years later, because their relationship continued, having sex nearly every summer for several years. In fact, it didn't end until July 14th of 2012. According to Tracy, on July 15th, the following day, she spent time with her half-brother. This would be John McNamara's children, Jesse and Joden. Over the years, Tracy had become friends with them, and that night, they decided to go visit their Uncle Tim. Tracy accompanied them to the McNamara Orchard. It was late at night, after 9 p.m., but Tim worked really long hours, and he had just arrived home. They all spent time talking and reminiscing, and during that time, Tracy would say she felt an instant connection with her Uncle Tim. When the cousins all left Uncle Tim's later that night, Tracy went with them, but she would return in secret and actively pursued a relationship with Tim, who again was technically her uncle. When it comes to Caleb and Tim's relationship with Tracy, I suppose you could say the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. This was also true for their looks. Tim looks like a fit and weathered Santa, lean with furrowed skin and a white beard. Caleb is the spitting image of his father, only with more of a baby face, black-haired and bearded. Tracy would learn that Tim, at 66 years old and 22 years her senior, was in the midst of his third divorce. That didn't stop her, or even slow her down. Their relationship moved forward very, very quickly. Two weeks later, Tracy and her youngest daughter, who was eight or nine years old at the time, returned to Soap Lake and went on a short camping trip with Tim. Afterwards, she flew back to North Carolina, but they'd already made plans for a visit a few weeks later. The second time, in September, Tim went to North Carolina to visit Tracy. When he was there, having spent a total of less than a full week with her, he paid $20,000 down on her mortgage, and while there he built her a bathroom and a closet in her home. In October, Tracy and her daughter would fly to Salt Lake City for a trip to Yellowstone. They'd meet Tim, and yes, he paid the fare, and while on the trip to Yellowstone, he'd put $10,000 down on a new GMC truck for Tracy. When the trip was over, Tim returned to Soap Lake, and Tracy headed back to North Carolina. Shortly afterward, Tracy would lose custody of her daughter and would be ordered to pay child support. This was a debt that Tim would pay moving forward. In November of 2012, Tracy quit her job at Ruby Tuesdays and moved to Soap Lake to join Tim at the orchard. That month, he began to pay her North Carolina mortgage. He added Tracy to his bank account and his credit cards as well. He paid off her credit card bills, and if that wasn't enough, he began depositing his Social Security payments into her bank account. Between December of 2012 and January of 2013, Tim transferred all his property into Tracy's name for a total of nearly $800,000. In addition, both of Tim's life insurance policies 
had the beneficiaries changed to Tracy. The value of these life insurance policies was $500,000. They began to speak out loud to family and friends about getting married. Word spread quickly through the small town, and it wasn't long before the couple felt the judgment of their community. Most people didn't approve of Tim's relationship with Tracy, but the couple fell hard and fast for each other. Even Tim's family agreed that he was under her spell. They had tried to nip the relationship in the bud, expressing to Tim that they were worried that he was being taken advantage of, and besides, how could he possibly marry his niece, who was so much younger? Was he crazy? They'd only been together for six months. In an attempt to escape the pressure and judgment of his family and community, the couple decided to take a trip to Belize in January. Belize is part of Central America, below and east of Mexico. They loved it there and made a return trip in February. They couldn't marry in the state of Washington. So, while on vacation, they looked at potentially doing so in Belize, and they hatched a plan to build a home and business there. Over the next several months, they worked with a single-minded dedication towards this plan. They would open a bed and breakfast. Tim leased his farm out, and using $240,000 that he'd been awarded for an insurance payout on a failed crop, he purchased 50 acres in Belize for $75,000, and he put Tracy's name on it next to his own. Tim, being a farmer, through and through, loved that part of their new property was a mango orchard. In December of 2013, almost a year and a half after they'd met, they were married. Their Belizean next-door neighbor, named Miss Bartolet, officiated the ceremony. In Belize, most people speak English, and it's also the official language, but much of the population also speaks Spanish and a Creole Patois. Over 40% of the population speak all three. I'm telling you this so that you'll realize there wasn't a terrible language barrier between Tim and Tracy and the locals. Over the next year, Tim primarily stayed on the property in Belize, but Tracy would often go back and forth. At one time, the newlyweds spent two and a half months apart, but that didn't mean that Tracy wasn't working. She would make arrangements in the United States for items that needed to be purchased and shipped to Belize, things like vehicles and tractors, that enabled them to work on their property together. They would invest approximately $160,000 into the property, in addition to the $75,000 purchase price. At this point in her life, Tracy feels like all her dreams are coming true. They're building a beautiful piece of property, a future bed and breakfast business, one that will allow them to have an income while they live happily together in Belize. It wasn't easy, they had worked very hard, long hours, and essentially built a house and business from the ground up in just over a year. They did cement work, placed sheetrock, windows, electric, sewers, all the home building essentials, and they worked together to get this done. As they're building, Tim McNamara is making friends with his neighbors and the men and women he hired to help him build his business. A man named Sonny Cortez, who was considered the mayor of Boston Village, the area where the McNamaras lived, described Tim as generous and always willing to help. He had machinery shipped into his property, but he would gladly pitch in and help the community whenever his machinery was needed. In Sonny's opinion, Tim worked hard, had a heart of gold, and helped build the entire community, not just his own home. They became friends and confidants. Tim began to open up about his relationship with Tracy, 
and according to Sonny, things weren't all paradise and mangoes between him and Tracy. They argued a lot. Tim told Sonny that on multiple occasions, when he and Tracy were arguing, that Tracy would viciously ask, When you die, where do you want me to bury you? Tim also told Sonny that he needed to rewrite his will. Sonny wasn't the only one with stories about Tracy. Tim had also opened up to his neighbor, Mrs. Bartolet, the woman who had performed the marriage ceremony for the two of them. He would go over to her house for lunch nearly every day. Sometimes he'd bring the men who were working with him, but often he'd go by himself, and Tracy would rarely come with him. During those lunches, they had many talks, and as time progressed, the talk became more concerning. He confided to Miss Bartolet that Tracy had already had an affair during their short marriage, and that he was devastated by that, but he still loved her. He also loved Belize. He had traded apples for mangoes, and he had great plans for them. He hoped to be able to offer home-cooked, mango-based foods for his guests, and, although he was keeping positive, Miss Bertolet did hear some of the negatives, and she saw some of the negatives with her own eyes, too. She reported that one day she saw Tim and Tracy together in their vehicle arguing. She watched on as Tracy smacked Tim in the back of the head. It seems that Tim had mixed emotions about staying in Belize. He loved his property and the home they were building, but he missed his family. Things had gone downhill for Tim recently. His family had said some terrible things since he began his relationship with Tracy. After leaving Soap Lake, his granddaughter wrote him, expressing her disappointment in him for leaving them and leaving everything to Tracy. She also accused him of molesting her as a little girl. That's a pretty serious accusation, and one that some people would believe. After all, he was married to his own niece, so was it a stretch to think he'd mess with his granddaughter? Tim disputed this and sent emails to her denying that anything like that ever happened, but she responded that his decision to leave Tracy hurt everyone in their family. Further accusations would come from Tracy's own mother. She would say that Tim molested Tracy when she was young, too. Tracy denied any memory of this happening, but she did say her mother had a sexual relationship with Tim when her mother was younger. It's a small town, was Tracy's explanation. And honestly, how could Tracy know why her mother made the decisions she allegedly did? There was no legal action taken regarding the accusations of molestation, and there wasn't any resolution to the issue, nor did it come up in future emails. After distancing himself for nearly two years, as Christmas of 2014 was drawing closer, Tim was hoping to mend things with his family especially because he had found out recently that he had cancer. Having cancer in any form tends to make people evaluate their lives and focus on what is truly important to them. Tim was trying to mend his relationships. His primary focus was on his family, his farm, and Tracy. His second worry was about money. It was going quickly. They'd spent nearly all of his readily available funds on fixing up the bed and breakfast in Belize, he and Tracy had even begun illegally logging on their property in an attempt to make ends meet. When Tim expressed his money concerns to his family, they suggested that perhaps he should sell the orchard back in Washington, but this wasn't an option for Tim. Truth be told, he was upset that they would suggest such a thing. He wanted his farm to stay in the family, and it seemed to him as though his kids had no interest in running the orchard, 
and that they would sell it as soon as he died. This was part of the reason he had changed his will earlier in the year, leaving everything to Tracy. His handwritten will explained clearly why he had made the choices he did when it came to his estate. So, at this point, everything he owns now goes to Tracy, leaving his family with nothing. Tim and Tracy are cash poor. Tim has cancer and still feels shunned by his family, and they only have a week before they plan to open the bed and breakfast. This brings us to Christmas Day, 2014, which happens to be two days before one of Tim's life insurance policies was set to expire, one he wouldn't be able to renew because of his cancer diagnosis. Tim McNamara is shot and dies. The gun belonged to Tracy Nessel, and it was one that she had bought only two months earlier on a trip home to North Carolina. Tim's body was found outside the back door of their house. When the police arrived, he's laying on the very edge of his deck with his hand draped over the side. The gun is laying on the ground under where his hand would have dropped it. There's a huge puddle of blood pooling around his head and dripping down, seeping through the deck onto the rocks below. Tracy tells police that she heard a shot while she was doing dishes or cooking dinner, but she didn't go out immediately. She heard the dogs, two Dobermans, barking, so she assumed Tim fired the gun into the air to scare away jaguars and other creatures that might come and hurt the dogs or other animals they kept on the property. This was something they'd done numerous times in the past. When she did finally go outside and she saw Tim's body, she thought he was playing a joke. He was laying on the deck, not moving. She called to him, but there was no response. Tim had bad knees, so she thought maybe he fell. She began shaking him by the hand, but he didn't move, and that's when she realized that something was seriously wrong. What happens next is something I will never be able to wrap my head around, but that being said, I've never been faced with the situation Tracy was faced with. Instead of calling the police... She lays down on the ground and spoons Tim with her chest against his body. She says she does this to comfort him. It's raining, so she tries to cover him up in a blanket, and at one point she doesn't know if he's alive or dead. At another time, she says she knows that he was dead. Either way, given time, possibly hours, something changes and she finally gets up. Does she call the police now? No, she doesn't. Forget about the fact that inside the house there's a landline, and that's because there's spotty cell service, but she still has her cell phone, and she's got his cell phone and the landline to choose from, but she doesn't pick any of them up. She doesn't call anyone. She doesn't even try to call the operator, a neighbor, no one. She gets into the car and drives to the neighbor's house. It's not far, only 150 yards. She can see it from her own property, even though it's dark now. It was dusk when she first found Tim's body. She goes to Miss Bartolet's house and says, Something's wrong. You need to come to my house. Tracy's hysterical and yelling and screaming, and Miss Bartolet is trying to figure out what she's saying and what's going on. She hugs Tracy, trying to calm her down. And once she realizes what Tracy was telling her, she tells Tracy that they need to call 911. But Tracy doesn't want to do that. She wants Miss Bartolet to come to the house with her. Miss Bartolet feels uncomfortable, so she says no, and she goes inside to call 911. Yes, Belize has a 911 call system in place. Tracy leaves Miss Bartolet's house and goes back to her house. By the time police arrive, 
it's believed that five and a half hours had passed since Tim had been shot. Blaze is not a third world country, but they don't run themselves like the United States, nor do they have all the resources the U.S. has. Their investigators might not be college educated, but they have been trained in some form. The crime scene inspector, Officer Henry, his job was to gather all the evidence. Based on his observations, he believed that the blood on the rocks indicated that Tim had been moved up onto the deck. He would report that there was no gun residue on Tim's hand. In fact, there was no residue of any kind on Tim's hands, not even blood. The police on the scene don't have an easy time doing their job because Tracy's dogs are out and they were intimidating. They asked Tracy to put them away, but she didn't do it right away. They had to ask repeatedly. Then they asked her to give them some space to work. She kept circling them and getting in the way. She eventually does leave, but they had to battle her to get things done. They did the best they could, and they took a lot of photographs. According to police reports, Tim McNamara was still alive when the police arrived. He died in the back of a pickup truck on the way to the hospital. The next day, Tracy calls Caleb McNamara to let him know that her father had died, and when he doesn't pick up, she texts him that his father is dead. When people ask her what happened, she gives three different stories. The first was that maybe he tripped and fell and accidentally shot himself. The second, maybe there were some people in the bush that shot him. And the third was, maybe it was suicide. Tracy's confusion and changing story results in the McNamara family becoming concerned. Caleb McNamara flies down to find out what's going on and to sort out his father's affairs. Early Belizean news reports labeled Tim McNamara's death as a suicide. Tracy said within days, the lead police officer conducting the investigation told her that her husband had borrowed money from him and that he wanted Tracy to repay it. Tracy told him that she didn't know anything about Tim owing him any money, and the officer turned away from her and said, It's not looking good for you anymore. It's just not looking good. She believed that the officer was asking for a bribe, but she refused to pay. When the officer was later questioned about this, he strongly denied asking Tracy for money. If Tracy's actions aren't suspicious enough already, what I'm going to tell you next will leave your head spinning. The day after Tim died, Caleb arrived at the mango farm. Somehow, he and Tracy ended up having sex. Tracy would later admit this, and she'd do so on national television. But Caleb denies that this happened. He does not deny their previous sexual encounters, though. So let's connect the dots here. Tracy married her uncle, which means the cousin she'd been having sex with for years became her stepson. She claims she had sex with her stepson the day after her husband's death. She doesn't have an explanation for this. She doesn't know why it happened, and we don't honestly know if it's even true, because later she'd be called a pathological liar. One thing to note here, though, is her admitting that makes her look bad. It certainly doesn't help her case, so why admit it on national TV? Was she looking to hurt the McNamara family? Or was she trying to prove that she tells the truth, even if it does make her look bad? Regardless, a few days later, Tracy would leave Belize and return to the orchard in Soap Lake. Two weeks after Tim's death, 
the authorities in Belize would release a statement that Tracy was responsible for Tim's death. Orlando Vera, a forensic analyst for the National Forensic Science Service in Belize, issued a series of reports concluding that Tim McNamara was not the one who fired the shot, causing the wound to his head. Four months later, Belize would issue a warrant for the arrest of Tracy Nessel McNamara for murder. However, as far as I can tell, they didn't pursue her capture. Tim's family was convinced that Tracy was guilty. They wanted her punished, and they wanted Tim's beloved orchard and his estate back in their hands. But first, they had to prove that Tracy killed Tim. In September of 2015, Jennifer and Caleb filed a wrongful death suit against their cousin, alleging that Tracy seduced, manipulated, and deceived their father for the sole purpose of financial gain. They alleged that Tracy had convinced Tim to put multiple properties and his life insurance policies in her name and then killed him. According to Tracy's defense, the police in Belize did a horrible job. What actually happened, they believed, was that Tim McNamara took his own life. They claimed all the evidence pointed toward suicide. Tim's family would disagree. He had never been suicidal, and he would never kill himself. The defense stated that Tim was depressed. They would show that in the days before he died, he had begun exchanging sentimental emails with his children, reminiscing about their past time together. The final email, timestamped just hours before Tim McNamara died, was addressed to Caleb, and it read, I sure have loved being your dad. They believed this was Tim's way of telling his son goodbye. But let's talk about what the Belize police investigation found. Tracy reportedly told police that Tim had grabbed the gun, which was registered to Tracy, and accidentally shot himself. Later, she changed the story, saying the victim committed suicide. Let's talk about the gun for a minute. The gun was in Tracy's name, but in Belize, each person is allowed to have one weapon registered to their name. So their family had a shotgun that was registered in Tim's name and this handgun that was registered in Tracy's name. And it wasn't an uncommon thing to have guns labeled that way in Belize. As a sidebar, I have to ask, how does someone accidentally shoot themselves in the back of the head? Tracy said it could have been an accident. But for the life of me, I can't figure out how it could be. I can see a suicide happening that way, though. If someone were to turn their head away from the gun, or from the hand holding the gun, it would go into the back of the neck or the back of the head. But as far as an accident could go, I can't figure it out. If you can, please let me know. The forensic report from Belize claimed that Tim did not shoot himself. As I stated earlier, they didn't find any blood splatter on his hands, which reportedly would indicate that his hands were not close enough to the wound when the shot was fired. The report also stated that the gun was likely placed next to the victim's body due to the lack of damage to the firearm that would have occurred if it had been dropped from the victim's hand. The gun was reportedly found on the left side of the victim's body, Investigators claimed that if McNamara had shot himself, the gun would have dropped on his right side because he was right-handed. It also reported that there was blood splatter on Tracy's blouse. The defense had explanations for most of this. First, they'd have to explain Tracy's odd behavior. She was confused and in shock when the police arrived. She wasn't able to understand what happened because of her shocked state. 
She claimed she didn't call the police because she didn't know what to do. She was in a foreign country, and she didn't know if they had 911. So she thought the best thing she could do was spoon her husband and try to comfort him. And that's how blood got onto her blouse. It was raining that night. The rain washed off the blood and gun residue that would have been on Tim's hands. And the truth was, his hand was never tested for gun residue anyway. According to the forensics reports from Belize, it stated that the bullet entered on the left side of Tim's head and exited on the right. But later, in the same report, the same medical examiner said the bullet exited on the left side of his head, which was a complete contradiction. The reports proved sloppy police work. The defense claimed that on that horrible Christmas day, Tim was depressed and angry. He and Tracy had had difficult conversations about their children, particularly Tracy's youngest daughter. He was concerned about his cancer and losing his life insurance, and they were running out of money. Tracy had offered to go to work as a flight attendant, but that only made Tim angrier. Maybe that's because he felt bad he couldn't provide for her like she had gotten used to, or maybe it was because she'd cheated on him already and he didn't want to give her the opportunity to do it again. The stress was so high that day, and their argument so explosive, that Tim allegedly drove the backhoe at Tracy on two occasions, almost hitting her. They'd been giving each other some space, and when evening came, Tracy went about with dinner preparations, and that's when she heard the gunshot. The defense went on to say that when Tracy went to Miss Bartolet to ask for help, Miss Bartolet didn't understand what Tracy was saying, and that's what she told the police to begin with. She stated that Tracy was still hysterical when she left the house to head back home. The defense explained that Tracy didn't oppose calling the police. It was just a misunderstanding. Between Tracy's panic and the language barrier, things were too confusing to both parties. According to Miss Bartolet, it took nearly an hour and a half for the police to arrive after her 911 call. It was during this time that Tracy lay with Tim, comforting him while waiting for the police to arrive. When the police did arrive, she was still spooning with him and was still hysterical. She didn't know what to do, and that's why she was running around in circles and getting in the way. The defense went on to say that a day or two after Tim's death, Tracy was asked for a bribe. She said no, and this was a sign of her innocence. If she were guilty, she would have paid the police off. The defense had more. When Caleb came to town, Tracy was told for the first time that there was a will. She claimed she never knew that Tim had written a will at all. It wasn't until several months later that she found out that everything had been left to her. In the time between Tracy finding out that there was a will and her finding out that everything was left to her, Jennifer and Caleb had tried twice to get Tracy to agree to split Tim's estate three ways, but Tracy always refused. She wanted to wait until she was able to read the will. That certainly made Jennifer and Caleb look greedy and manipulative. However, Tracy could have been playing the long game, and maybe she knew about the will the entire time. The defense also claimed that Caleb and Jennifer made a trip to Belize. They sold some of Tim's equipment, a tractor, and some other items, and it was at that time that the police in Belize decided that Tim's death might be a homicide instead of a suicide. The defense implied that maybe they had bribed police to make it look like Tracy was guilty. 
Caleb and Jennifer denied this. Tracy and Tim were essentially newlyweds, and they were on the verge of opening their bed and breakfast. Yes, it was a stressful time, but it was also a very happy time, according to Tracy. She claimed that she and Tim were happy, and there was evidence of this. A year earlier, in their wedding pictures, they were both beaming. Tim's will was explicit and clear. In it, he expressed his love for Tracy. He also expressed his love for his children, but he feared that if he passed the farm onto his children, it would be sold right away and his beloved legacy would be gone. In the years following Tim's death, Tracy has struggled to keep the 100-acre farm in Soap Lake up and running, but she has kept it running, and she has been successful. She claims that she made a promise to him that she'd never sell it. As of early this year, she was still running it successfully. However, that's likely to come to an end if it hasn't already, because on March 25th of 2022, after three and a half hours of deliberation, the Grant County jury entered a verdict in favor of criminal murder, specifically stating that Tracy Nessel McNamara committed battery against Tim McNamara, which caused his death. Her actions were unlawful and willful. Caleb and Jennifer were rewarded a total of $3.3 million. Longtime listeners, you know me, and you know that I had to look online to see whether the bed and breakfast was still open. It seems that it was for some time, but there hasn't been a review since 2016. At that time, it was called Cohoon Ridge Bed and Breakfast. Perhaps there are new owners now, or it's been converted. It's a lovely piece of property, as is the property on Soap Lake. I'd like to believe that Tim's legacy lives on through his land and his orchards, no matter who owns them. Thank you all for listening. Really quickly, I'd like to correct a mistake I made in the last episode. I was referring to Lacey Peterson's case from memory, and I'm the first to admit that I have a terrible memory when it comes to names. I called her murderous husband Drew. His name is Scott, and in my opinion, his name doesn't deserve to be remembered. Moving on, and more importantly, I do have a couple of special thank yous. The first is to Tom Kintz. Hi, Tom. He says five stars in regards to murdered while cycling around the world. It's an excellent telling of a sad story. Keep up the good work. Thank you, Tom. Uh, also from JJ Smith 318 five stars, love, absolutely great content. Stories are straight to the details without a whole lot of frill. Thank you. That's how I like to listen to them too. And lastly, from Joni Cakes, my new favorite, just sorry it took me so long to discover this fabulous true crime podcast. Great stories from around the globe with a great narrator. Thank you, Joni Cakes. Thank you everybody for sharing this podcast with your true crime loving friends. If you'd like to see pictures pertaining to this case, please check them out on Twisted Travel and True Crime on Facebook and Instagram. Once again, I appreciate you all listening, and I'd like to wish you fair winds, following seas, and safe travels of all kinds.